We are back this week with part two of redefining the autism narrative with two adult self-advocates on the autism spectrum, Kieran Rose and Virginia Spielman. We spoke last week about going from a deficit lens towards a well-being and neurodiversity affirming lens. We talked about thwarted expectations that society gives us, the awful history of autism, recognizing trauma, a culture of ableism, social model of disability, the double empathy theory, and really challenging the systems in place and focusing on finding support. This week in part two, we're going into some of the more specific experiences of autistics. And the three of us will speak to our neurodivergent experiences growing up and some of the things that happen and ways to appreciate the autism experience. So stay tuned for part two. You're listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. When, you know, everyone around us is telling us things are supposed to be this way and that way, um, and you meant you referred to that earlier that that causes uh, kids to mask a lot. So, um, Again, maybe we're talking about children who are otherwise blending into the crowd because this may not be as much an issue with children who have more severe disabilities that are visible, um, who stand out from the crowd. But some of the people on the spectrum that are like sort of invisible disabilities and they're masking and I'm reading about a lot of this and um, you know I relate to it too like um, if if I didn't fit in with my peers I would you know you'd pretend that you agree with them or you know, go along with things that you might not necessarily agree with to sort of fit in with the crowd um, but more specifically let's talk about this topic of masking in autistics and how harmful it is uh, to them doing this over time and how draining and tiring it is. Um, <laughs> right. This is where I have to rein myself in um, <laughs> because I will talk about this for hours. Um, masking is a trauma response. That's what we're looking at here. So when you look at the research narrative and the kind of the cultural narrative around autistic masking, it's about fitting in and it's about one, us wanting to be like neurotypical people and, and blending in in that kind of regard. But actually, I, a lot of the work that I've done has flipped that on its head because it's about projecting an acceptable version of ourselves, however that looks to the people that are around us. And that can actually change dependent on who we're with. Um, there is a, an element of masking, which is completely a human behavior, which is context switching, where everybody acts a little bit differently around other people around different people like with our parents we're different to how we are with our friends and with our children and so on and our colleagues and whatever um but then you have to take that and kind of add rocket fuel to it to get to the kind of perspective of autistic people masking and neurodivergent people masking generally because this isn't and non-neurodivergent people because this isn't just about autistic people this is a marginalized behavior so any group that is marginalized has to adapt in order to survive um, to make themselves appear less of what marginalized them. So they project less of what, what makes them marginalized. And autistic people do that as well. So it's around 
um, a lot of suppression, suppressing the way that we need to communicate, suppressing our behavior, suppressing our sensory responses, suppressing our interests, suppressing everything, really. And then on top of that, there can be elements around things like um, fawning. Um, so fawning is a massive part of the, 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 the musking narrative where we people please, where we go out of our way to make other people feel more comfortable. So if you imagine that in a work environment, that might be the person that, that says yes to everything. Someone says, can you do this? Yes, I can. And then they end up with their desk buried under piles and piles of paperwork and everybody else has no work to do. And, you know, and so you can see then how those kind of narratives can actually start to become problematic from that fawning perspective as well, because that starts in childhood and all of this is an early developmental thing that increases as we get older. So if you have an autistic child that fawns and wants to people please, so then you can maybe understand why there are higher prevalences of abuse amongst autistic children, because we're more inclined to do what people tell us to do, because that pleases the other person. And then you can see how behavioralist narratives can really fit that, because that's about children giving children stuff and them wanting to please the people who are therapizing them. And so, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you're missing the authenticity out of everything. It's your authenticity doesn't exist anymore. It's about the authenticity that other people want to see. So then those narratives are massively problematic. And what that does is use up firstly huge amounts of energy, but also as we develop, our brain compartmentalizes the masking aspect of ourselves so that we become less and less aware that it's actually what we're doing. It becomes our normalized behavior. So it's almost like we're projecting another version of ourselves constantly putting on this hologram of what's acceptable to other people. And the the reserves, the energy reserves that go into that are enormous but because we completely dissociate from it, we don't realize that all that energy is going into it, which is where we get into narratives like autistic burnout and regression and those skills losses and things like that, which are common narratives for autistic people, but are actually seen as being part of being autistic when in actual fact, they're not, they're part of a stigmatized, marginalized existence. So it, again, it's another one of these huge topics but one that's absolutely worth exploring because so many parents who have autistic children, even though we know now it's genetic, you know, that's pretty much a given. It's like, I mean, the the research is pointing to something like 70% genetic now. So, you know, we know it runs in families. We know there's hereditary natures to it, but yet many autistic, many parents of autistic children don't realize that they themselves are autistic because of the narratives that we're told that autism only presents in a certain way and then masking feeds that narrative. So again, it's, it's so huge. It's another massive one that I'm just sure Virginia will want to pick apart and tease apart there. I can see us <laughs> well, also, there's, smiling. <laughs> also, there's no definitive measure of are you artistic, autistic or not? It's not like you take a blood test and Ooh, you're autistic. You're not negative, positive. Yeah, it, it's because, very subjective. Yeah, because it's subjective and, and it's such a spectrum. But even part of that, when um, if you look at if you look at that narrative around the kind of spectrum, all human beings are individuals. We all present in certain ways, depending on a, a massive collection of different things that go on in our lives that, that form our identities. Um, so when we come even to the notion of the spectrum, even that is really kind of a medicalized view of being autistic. It suggests that there are certain presentations of being autistic, which we know isn't true. Um, because it's all built on individuals and individual disabilities and individual life experiences and all those kind of things that, that all intersect together to create 
who we are. And when we try and compartmentalize these things, all we do is make a mess. And then all we do is give a reason for kind of tick box support exercises and tick box therapies and things that work in particular ways geared towards a certain presentation of being autistic that doesn't exist in the first place. So there's so much there. So I think we come back to this medical model piece, right? Yeah. Which we, if we go back to the report that you got about your son, where the, the evaluator said, I found this child hard to assess, that's medical model speak, right? Like when you go to the doctor and you say, um, I'm really, really tired all the time and I don't know what it is. And they look at everything and they can't figure it out. They go, oh, you've got chronic fatigue, fatigue syndrome. And you go, yeah, I think I I think I just told you that. And then they go, here's your diagnosis. And you go home and then you go and you say, look, I, my bowels are really, are really reactive. I've got these really reactive bowels. I, I, you know, I don't know what to do. Imodium is, oh, you've got, you've got irritable bowels. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just told you that. Right. Like the, <laughs> and, and, and like your mental health, you know, um, look, we, we've tried every, uh, we've tried every um, pharmaceutical, we've tried every approach. Your new diagnosis is resistant to treatment. Uh, so like like we're confused so we just say you're too hard a human um and so you sort of have this like that you know we, we just keep coming back to this like this medical way of seeing things which speaks to there being one right way to be human and um you know and then and absolutely informs the design of most therapies for neurodevelopmental differences and so masking is taught indirectly but it's also taught explicitly because we provide we ask you to stop pacing or stimming or making the irritating noise to get the reward to get to be accepted to be allowed to participate to be pulled out of your time out if your mask isn't on then you can't participate and you won't get the reward. And in fact, we're going to even take away the things that are going to regulate you and we're going to remove your recess and this and this and that. And so, you know, I just feel like a lot of this conversation keeps coming back to this medical model where we're pathologizing differences through a deficit lens. And if medicine can't fix it, it's unfixable, which is nonsense, you know? And, and so we... we and, and that's how we perceive a lot of things, you know, in our neurodivergent family members and peers is, um, um, for example, um, some of the goals that we set for our, for our children. So engaging in non-preferred tasks is a goal that Kieran knows I get very angry about all the time because it's a nonsense goal. Who in the world would pay money to go to a therapist who is going to make them engaged in non-preferred tasks? No adult would consent to that. And yet we, we submit our children to it all the time. Um, uh, adjusting conversation topics to be socially acceptable. Um, and then you come back to this double empathy problem. Socially um, acceptable to who? <laughs> Yeah, who gets to decide that? Whose convenience is this about? And, and this is where we come into this, this topic of monotropism, where we have individuals and um, uh, across the lifespan with intense interests uh, who 
um, can focus and show, demonstrate wonderful attention and um, achieve um, amazing things. But because we've decided it's a pathology, um, it gets called, it doesn't get called a special interest. What's the deficit label? I forget now. You know, but special interest almost has a negative valence to it nowadays. Oh, this is autistic special interest. He's been stimming on dinosaurs for years. We're trying to get him to stop, you know, and it's like, well, maybe he's going to be a paleontologist <laughs> before he's 11, you know. And so there's this, but, uh, you know, but it's just very, I just, I just think it's so interesting that so much of this comes down to deeply deeply embedded ways of thinking about being human mm -hmm. and the people who challenge this the most I think are neurodivergent and I think we really need them I, otherwise we're gonna get stuck <laughs> I I you know I I'm the type of person who tells stories with every every detail ever and so people are always saying get to the point get to the point um, you know, my brother laughs lovingly with me, like, okay, is this going to be one of your 35 minute stories? And, you know, and I, I have very vivid memory of going to see my first movie as a child. I think my aunt or somebody took me to see this movie. It was some Raggedy Ann movie or something. And that gives away my age. And then I came home and my mom said, how was the movie? And I described every detail with this great excitement and, and then this, and then, the, and I remember her saying, okay, okay, already, I get it, I get it. And sort of walking away and like being like, oh, okay. You know, having that like, oh. And, you know, I think now when I hear my son talking about stuff that he loves, like even if I'm um, not totally understanding everything he's saying, I make sure that I'm like, wow, that is so cool. That's awesome. And I can see how much you love that. Because I remember how awful I felt when, you know, people didn't care to you ask me a question, and then you don't care about the answer. Now, I also understand as an adult, if you go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, people are gonna be like, okay, okay, you know, wrap it up now. But um, is that monotropism? <laughs> Karen, Karen, go. You are describing monotropic communication. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, amongst autistic people, um, communicate the intent of communication is sometimes a little bit different because actually it's around the exchange of knowledge and information. So, when you look at communication styles amongst what a term I don't like the word neurotypical because I don't think there is such a thing as neurotypical, but generally in society, the way that most people converse. It's around talking about things that really lack substance, um, you know, talking about the weather or talking about who did what down the street with the next door neighbor's cat or what, you know, all those like social chit chat things that go on. So when you look at how autistic people tend to communicate, whether that's people who communicate through their voice or people communicate through text, it tends to be information exchange and it tends to be kind of, well, the term that we use is monologuing which is actually a deficit-based term within itself. It's about, you know, taking control of the conversation and you're the only one speaking and you're commanding the stage and everybody has to listen to you. When in actual fact, it's not about that at all. It's about the process of information and the process of your sensory system as well. So the word monotropism, what it actually describes is attention. And the theory of monotropism, which was derived by autistic people, um, 
comes from the use of attention tunnels. So it's not just about what a term special interest, but it's actually it's about what has your interest at any given moment. So whatever has your interest, your whole sensory system is kind of aligned towards focusing on that thing, which is why transitions can be difficult because when all your senses are geared towards that thing, when you're asked to transition or if something happens that makes you kind of have to pull away from it, it's like pulling yourself out of a gravity well sometimes. Literally, you have to like suck yourself out and fight against gravity to pull yourself away. That could be when you're doing the washing up. You know, you could be fo so focused on the washing up that not everything that goes on around you is, is not interfering with you until it does. And then it's that can really dysregulate you. That can make you cross. It can make you snappy and growly. And then there are a whole other big words that we could be talking about, which make that even more problematic, but we probably won't go into now because we haven't got time. Um, but, you know, so those are the kind of narratives that we're dealing with when we're autistic. And this also applies to ADHD people as well, who also have attention tunnels like that and communicate in that mm -hmm. kind of very similar way. And when you're on the receiving end of that, when you're a non-autistic person or a non-neurodivergent person on the receiving end of that communication, because it's not your natural communication style, you can get bored easily. You know, you don't want to hear about this thing going on for five minutes about this thing that you're really not interested in, or, you know, you, you don't focus, hyper-focus on certain things all the time. You can move your attention around quite easily around lots of different things. So that can become a problem for you. And when you are part of the dominant group in society, that means that you view your way of communicating as the right way. And the other person's communication is not the right way. It's the wrong way. So this is why we have narratives around autistic children around having to learn how to take turns and having to learn to take pauses in conversation for perspective taking and things like that, you know? So, but actually what you're doing when you're doing that, as you described really well from your childhood, you were invalidated. Your communication style and your need to pass on information when you've been asked a question was invalidated, which meant then that you felt bad which then made you feel probably shameful, stigmatized, you know, all these things that we're talking about. And that's one example. And I bet that happens to you a lot. If you really start digging deep, that probably happens to you a lot. And that happens to all of us as autistic people, as neurodivergent people. As we grow up, we experience these things. And for many of us, we stop communicating in that way because we have to, because we're told that it's the wrong thing to do and we're made to feel bad for it. So monotropism is about attention. It's about focusing on singular kind of things at a given time and then having to really pull away from that thing and refocus on the next thing. But when you don't exist like that, when you can snappily change your attention from one thing to the next, it can be really easy to invalidate that monotropic existence. And again, this is a narrative that we wouldn't be talking about were it not for autistic people with insight talking about autistic people and other neurodivergent groups talking about themselves because this has been another thing that's been pathologized by professionals and by people viewing externally and saying well what you're doing is wrong and the way that you're doing it is wrong we need to change that yeah it's, yeah, it's one of the, really interesting yeah virginia well just just one of the originators of the theory of monotropism dr dina murray passed away recently sure. and her son wrote a really wonderful um, um, blog post, journal article, I don't know what it would be. Um, he's called Fergus Murray and he was brought up by this, someone who really cultivated a positive autistic identity, I think. And you can see that in his writing, you can see it in his identity and how he talks about autism. And I really like the framing of 
monotropic communication or info dumping, which is what we call it in our family. A lot of people call it that um, as a love language. As you know, if this, this is my autistic love language, I need to, I need to info dump. So, you know, if you're going to ask me about the brain or current research or Dungeons and Dragons, you're probably going to get an info dump from me. Um, another member of my family, if you're going to ask them about Marvel or, you know, and, and there's a few hot topics, you are certainly going to get an info dump, but it's, it's, it's connection, it's sharing, it's joy, there's pleasure in it. Um, it's a gift. And you know, actually, Daria, what you said before, you know, like, well, we've got to an adult and you can't do that because other people get bored and what have you. Actually, if you're around the right people, yeah, I was going to say that. And that's the say, thing. That's where culture comes into this in a great way. You know, I was going to say that because um, I love listening to, I'm using this term for the first time, info dumps of other people. Like mm. things that I remember are so different than from things other people remember. Like um, I'm so interested in people and how they function and everything. So I'll remember every biographical detail of anybody who's ever told me anything in their life. I remember their birthday, who their parents are, how many siblings they have, like every, you know, biographical detail, like uh, what they liked to eat, what restaurants they went to, like anything like that, I remember. And then whatever they talked about, I didn't remember that at all. <laughs> but if so, it and, you know, just I, I'm so hyper focused all the time on things that I do. But I also can switch my attention from things to things and then I can go back and pick up on it. Um, I don't know that it that I maybe I do experience that sucking out of the gravity thing sometimes, but um, but I definitely have that hyper focus. But it's interesting because like I enjoy hearing other people do that if it's something I'm also interested in. Um, maybe if it's something I'm not interested in, then not so much. I don't know how that works. But I, I know, um, Virginia, did you want to share about the monotropism and personal experiences at, at all anymore? Well, I mean, I, every time I answer a question on this podcast, Daria, I'm info dumping. <laughs> um, and, you know, Kieran I, knows it. He knows it. Um, you know, my special interest is um, human development and it is the diversity in human development and it is human flourishing and that I managed to get a PhD in it because it's my special interest and Kieran was diagnosed when he was 21 and that was what did you say 23 years ago and I was diagnosed when I was 42 and that was eight months ago <laughs> um so um you know it's been very interesting for me one of the things my diagnostician said I think I said that right um, to me uh, in the process of my diagnosis was that that I have developed such a supportive lifestyle for myself that that's one of the reasons um, it hasn't been painfully obvious apart from to people like Kieran from um, you know for my whole life Kieran met me and knew within seconds um, and a few other uh, what happened was a few years ago autistic friends started assuming that I knew I was autistic and I'd go oh I guess I'm just really good at connecting and then I'd you know <laughs> and then that wouldn't marry with my actual experience of life which has been very awkward social interactions in in mainstream settings for most of my life um 
and um, more and more my closest friends are on the spectrum they're autistic some of them don't want to be called autistic others want to you know that's a whole different conversation um, and um, so yeah I just decided to look into it and partly because I think of I I can't say no to one of my monotropic interests like I uh, which is painfully obvious if you look at my calendar and my time, <laughs> what I spend my time on. Um, and I was, I was really close to burnout. And so I needed to figure out like what's going on here. Um, how can I practice more self-compassion and self-care? And so for me, my diagnosis was about practicing self-compassion. It's also really, really helped my marriage um, to my very, very neuro majority husband um and some of my friendships as well with friends who we just spent some time with some of our dearest friends and um a few days after they'd gone one of my children who's neurodivergent said I didn't know that like really neurotypical people existed but I guess they do <laughs> and you know with the pandemic and everything like we've just been in this bubble and so you know figuring out you know how to do these these different interactions and things like that and and co I I like what Kieran said, he talked about context switching. I think that the maladaptive version of that is code switching, which is what you have to do when you're marginalized and you need to fit in. And I'm trying to learn how to context switch and not code switch now. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how not to put my mask on and suppress and those sorts of things as an act of self-care Code switching originates from linguistics. And um, when you switch between languages, especially in bilingual communities and so on. Um, and so some communities that have um, developed their own languages and then you see someone else and you have to switch, it can happen between generations. So if I'm with my peers, I talk and act a certain way. And then if I'm with my the elder generation of my community, I would switch into traditional behaviors. And so it's very, very hot topic in immigrant communities and so on, but wherever there's this mixture of cultures. And so if I'm with my people, I'm this way, and then I have to switch. And I really fully switch to the point where I'm not necessarily expressing myself as much as I'd like to. Um, and so I think it's a very relevant concept and it might not be perfect for explaining um some of the masking and camouflaging pieces um and the suppression of self-regulatory behaviors and so on that autistics have to or feel they have to um engage in in order to participate you know in this awful socially acceptable way and it, you know one part of me never ever camouflaged like i you know there was a part of me that was always going to dye my hair blue, get tattoos, um, dye my hair pink, dye my hair green, pierce both sides of my nose, pierce every part of my ears, you know, wear wild clothes, like all of these things that I did through my life. There was a part of me that absolutely needed everyone to know I'm not like you. And then there were lots of other parts of me that were shamed and shamed by my peers, shamed by my teachers, misunderstood very, very badly by... Um, men um, who thought I was because I'm so intense that I must mean things I didn't mean and you know all of all of these other things so I, I have that whole trauma piece and I also have this piece that was like yeah never gonna conform sorry and it's just really helpful 
again, as this act of self-compassion to start unpacking these pieces in, in my 40s um, uh, and have great friends like Kieran to help me on the way. And yeah, so um, yeah, I think that's my info dump finished for now. You're listening to affectautism.com where affect can help your child determine if they feel safe with you or not, where affect that is demanding or not authentic does not feel safe, where affect helps you co-regulate with your child and where affect can foster engagement. Our use of affect is essential in connecting with our child. And you can only do that if you're present in the moment, attuned to the person you're with and respect where they are developmentally their individual differences, including their sensory processing profile and your own, and the relationship that the two of you have. Now let's get back to our podcast. Well, I I don't know if I have any diagnoses. Um, that remains to be seen whether I find out or not. I don't know, but I certainly relate to all of this stuff because I, I definitely read a lot um, from self-advocates and, and I'm like, yes, I do that too. Yes, I've done that too. So, you know, there's all these different things that come up, but um, just to to bring it back full circle to um, the parenting experience, I guess it's really hard for anybody to know the future. So while some of us will have kids that blend in with the crowd and might have these neurodivergent tendencies, what do we say to the parents whose kids are really struggling, who the parents are really struggling, their kids aren't able to go to regular school, or if they are, they need so much support, they're, they're just not getting the respect and support that they need. Um, I mean, beyond saying, you know, just love them, respect them, appreciate them for who they are, find their strengths. I love how you said that, Kieran. Uh, DIR floor time is definitely a strengths-based model where you know we look for the strengths and how can we build on on those you know interactions and relationship with our children to have shared joyful experiences together beyond that nobody can tell us the future but i don't know what what more can we help parents who are really feeling like oh this is really so hard for me i i don't know what is going to happen to my child in 10 years or 20 um, it's it's something that I come up with all the time. I support a lot of parents and it's a very similar question around kind of people being fearful of them not being there and being able to support their children um, and worrying that their children will still need support after they've gone. For some people, yes, that will be the case. For others, it might not be. And like you said, we can't predict the future and, and you need to look at that in a, in a positive sense as well, that how someone presents when they're a five-year-old is not necessarily how they're going to present when they're 50. We grow up, you know, we, we all of us grow up in, in our own various ways and what we have to kind of come back to. And as well, I, something I did want to say earlier, actually just around kind of monotropism, which relates to this is that the power of monotropism is so incredible that we cannot make judgments about how we perceive people, even our own children, because outside of me talking about autism, I very rarely speak. And the reason that I don't speak is because speaking is 
absolutely exhausting for me. It's trashing for me. And I've spent my life putting so many different things in place, as Virginia said, that enable me to be able to talk when I have to. But I'm also situationally mute, which further complicates things, which makes it even more exhausting. So I've got all these things that enable me to talk when I have to, that when I don't have to, I don't. I talk with my kids via text communication most of the time. My daughter and I draw to each other. Um, my wife and I, if someone came into our living room and saw the five of us sitting there, it would look like we never interacted with our kids when in actual fact we're communicating all the time. So a lot of this is around, again, what I said earlier around expectations and about stripping those back and dialing that back and living in the moment of right now and thinking, I can't control what's going to happen tomorrow, but what I can do is look about how we can make today positive and about how we can find the positive in each day, in each moment, about how we can look to those strengths and build on those strengths. And we are unfortunately surrounded by systems which make our lives incredibly difficult. That's education systems, that's care systems, um, health systems. No matter where we are, those things are not built for us as neurodivergent people or as parents of neurodivergent people. You know, those things are there to trip us up and make our life hard and punish us sometimes when we don't do what they want us to do. That's the world that we're living in. And that is, that's what we're trying to change. And none of us can change that overnight. That's a long-term process. But right now, you have a community of people around you as a parent, first the other parents, but underneath that, and probably more importantly, you have people who are like your child. Now they might be able to speak and your child might not be able to. They might have an intellectual disability and your child might not. That doesn't mean that experiences aren't similar and relatable and that there isn't value in something that they have to communicate. So there is something to learn from everyone. And it's just about, respecting that respecting yourself and giving yourself the time to take in what other people are telling you which is hard because parents also have internalized ableism and you know because of the conditioning that happens around us so again a lot of this is about time and patience breathing and just taking what's useful and using that i'm imagining like a a, a course or some kind of thing that we put parents through where we erase all these myths and worries and things. And then once they've sort of gone through that, then we have like a big brothers, big sisters kind of group where autistic self-advocates answer questions to parents and sort of match up like, my daughter doesn't speak. She does this and this and that. And this woman says, that's how I was when I was little. Okay, good. You two match up. You're the big sister. And then, you know, like just to help parents, uh, because yeah. right now the support that's available for parents is professionals who mostly aren't autistic. Right, yeah. Virginia? Uh, unless they just haven't figured that out yet. But, um, <laughs> but I think what I, I mean, Karen and I have discussed this, like, what does this course look like? We've discussed it uh, a million times. One of the things we have to be really careful about is not putting labor onto the autistic adult who's already had enough trauma and labor. Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do we minimize that? How do we, how do, what, you know, what, what format is going to um, maximize impact and minimize labor for the autistic adults? And, you know, I think because we're autistic, like it's going to be hard to, it's going to be hard for us not to want to do this, but it is also costly. 
And so that's just something to think about. But I think as you're thinking about the future and you're thinking about like the what's this going to look like in 20 years, you know, I've had these conversations recently. I had one mom of a delightful young boy who really was very, very competent, but has been obviously given the role of the difficult child at his school. And, you know, our kids say, okay, I'll, I'll internalize that script. They don't challenge it. Um, and she was, you know, do you think he's going to read? Do you think he's going to be okay? And she's crying. And I was like, don't believe what the world's telling you. Mm. He's going to be great. And she, no one had ever said that to her. So find the professional that sees your child, not as someone trapped by autism, not as someone who needs to be, you know, fixed, but who sees and enjoys your child and their ideas right now and, and find spaces for your child that are safe spaces where they will not be asked to mask, where they will be given accommodations and multiple forms of communication options and they can play for play's sake um, and they can just build social confidence instead of learning uh, obscure and um, um, arbitrary social skills, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, unfortunately at the moment most of those groups are run by people who then need to be paid so they're expensive but more and more and more we need to see these safe spaces being cultivated and accessible in an an equitable way Um, yeah and so that's that's that would be my final word I think I mean even the, um, the the course that you described there there are autistic people who are putting together courses like that and creating those spaces around There's something that I've done, the, the, the big course that I mentioned earlier that I, I run it three times a year. Um, and it's not autism training. I'm very clear from the beginning that it isn't autism training. It's about reframing our understanding of what autism is and what mm-hmm. it looks like in inverted commas. I'm doing that thing and nobody can see them, um, but um, you know, the, it's about reestablishing and reorganizing our thinking around what it means to be autistic and how we can validate that and not deficitize it and pathologize it. And within that as well, I mean, we, we, I had 300, I had 300 people on the last one over, over the six weeks. Um, and we do create that community that you just, there's a lot of Q and a time. That's pretty much three quarters of the time is around Q and a and discussion. And we have autistic people who regularly come back now because they like the community and they like the fact that, autistic people are centered within that community and that we can talk freely and that professionals Mm -hmm. and parents are there to learn from those discussions Mm -hmm. and feel a part of it as well. So it's a real genuine kind of community around that. And and other autistic people are creating those similar kind of courses and creating those environments. It's just, there just needs to, we need support for more of us to do it and for it to be out there more in order for more parents to be able to access it. And it's, we all need to learn together. And I think that's the thing. And we need to get away from this idea that we can teach people about autism because we can't teach people about autism. Autism is an ethereal thing. It doesn't really exist, but we can teach people about what it feels like to be autistic and how that interaction with the world and how society needs to just widen a little bit because we talk about autistic people not accessing society when in actual fact, it's the other way around. It's society not giving access to autistic people. So when we recenter and reframe our thinking around that, we just, the whole world just changes. And it's just that little, little tiny changes that make those huge differences that we can all get swept up in. And I know that parents are saying, 
yes, if only I could find these places for my child, it's a struggle. Hopefully we'll get there. I want to thank you both so much for being here. I hope we'll be able to continue the conversations going forward in future podcasts. I'll put links to Kieran's website and the course he mentioned and uh, other things that we've mentioned in this podcast at affectautism.com um, under today's today's podcast. So thank you, Virginia. Thank you, Kieran, for being here. Thank My pleasure. You. Thank you. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. Hi, I'm Daria Brown, and I hope you're enjoying the podcasts at Affect Autism. Did you know you can get bonuses by becoming a member for as little as $5 US per month? Check it out at patreon.com slash affectautism. Thank you for your show of appreciation.